Him 275 was just announced to be the one that we'll use at the appropriate time later in the lesson this evening. As was already mentioned at the outset of the announcements, it is a tremendous honor we've each been given and a great blessing, as Ted mentioned, that for us to be able to assemble and to gather as we even as we are tonight. And even as we began a series of lessons last Sunday evening on the book of Job, we will look forward to continuing that not only tonight, but the next several weeks as we work our way through that particular Old Testament book. As you may have noted, that book has some 42 chapters in the sacred scriptures, and thus it'll take a few weeks for us to give thought to and reasonable consideration of the particular chapters therein. We will not be covering, though, just one chapter at a particular week. We'll be taking several chapters as we give thought to the lesson each week. In fact, as you look at some of the interesting thoughts from last Lord's Day evening, as well as providing a foundation for tonight, we learned last evening as we began that book that we gave attention to the first two chapters, those chapters that are often called a prologue, and we learned, among other things, that Job was a real person. Though there have been those through the centuries that have alleged that the book of Job was just a good story, that there was never a physical man named Job who survived, we learned that that was not the case. The Old Testament testifies that he was the greatest of the men of the East and that he was a very wealthy individual. However, we notice that his righteousness had not gone unnoticed by God, but rather it was God who made mention of Job even to the evil one, Satan. And God allowed Satan to, in fact, operate in such a way as to remove his possessions, and that he did in the opening chapter of this book. We also notice that a second conversation took place between God and also the character of evil. On this occasion, Job was afflicted in such a way that Satan had been allowed to even take away his health. It was that that we noted allowed us to appreciate that we shall continue to study that particular book tonight. When we last saw our study last time, we found that in the midst of Job's calamity, in the midst of that great series of difficulties, three friends came to him. They, for a solid week, sat speechless, observing, watching, appreciating the depth of the depravity in which Job found himself, the terrible character of the suffering and agony he now endured. Beginning in chapter number 3, we now shall see what happens with regard to Job and those friends that have come. As you can see near the bottom of that particular slide that's before us, we have only the observation that this brings us face to face with the issue of human suffering. What might we say about it? Although there will be more directed thoughts concerning it later in the series, we might at least at this point pause to notice that the issue of suffering has been the matter raised by many in the atheist community for years. Namely, they argue that if there were a God, He would never allow ones who claim to believe in Him to suffer as He does. And thus, the matter of suffering is something that, at least in their mind, is a reasonable argument for the fact there can be no God. We know that they're wrong, and we know that their point of view is mistaken, and this book will help us appreciate the thoroughness of their error. A picture, perhaps. This is an artist's rendition of Job and his friends, Job being in such a pitiful state of suffering. And we've already learned the character that even as his health suffered due to those boils 
that were upon his body from the tip of his head all the way to the soles of his feet. And Job was left to simply scrape them. We can imagine as the difficulty surrounded the agony that came with that, trying to scrape them and fluids, the pus, if you please, would emerge from them. What a sorrowful state, a state of agony, a state of great, great difficulty. It is in the midst of that situation, the friends, of course, surrounding Job. Let's now see what happens in chapter 3. At this point, Job speaks first. After this seven-day period of silence, this period in which the friends were observant, silent, listening to all the things that took place about them, Job now takes the liberty of talking first. Some of the things that Job reveals in chapter 3 seem almost an amazing thing to you and me today, so let's highlight some of the features of it. We notice beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Job, as the King James states it, cursed his day. That is to say, he was pitifully sorry for the day of his birth. Given the agony he had suffered, he had lost his children, he had lost his possessions, he had lost his own character of good health in the midst of all this loss. Job began to feel sorry for the day he was born. He knew that had that day not happened, he at least wouldn't be in the agony and suffering he was now in. This chapter over and over again draws us to the conclusion and the thinking of Job's serious consideration of his own present state. I would invite you to notice carefully the following verses. In verse 3, Job speaking said, "'Let the day perish wherein I was born,' And the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. Job again, as we've already noted, was sorrowfully remembrance of the day of his own conception, the day of his birth, and he wished that that day had never been. Furthermore, you'll notice even later in the chapter, in verse 11, Job says, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Even wished that he in fact had died as a child even wished that he had not actually emerged to know the character of life that he had known in the years since then. In addition, you can see in verse number 16, Or as in hidden untimely birth I had not been, as infants which never saw light. He even makes mention on that occasion of almost wishing that he had been stillborn. That is to say, had never come forth in life from his mother's womb. All of that, if anything, highlights for us the character of the suffering he had now endured, the mental anguish that had been his, the great sense of loss that was now surrounding him, and the terrible anguish and difficulty from his own health and even the lack of support that his wife and others had given him. Because of all of that, we notice that Job had no rest, he had no ease. As you notice with me particularly, Verse number 13, Job said, For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest. We might pause to notice one interesting point. If John Calvin and others had been correct, that in fact babies are those which themselves are encumbered with sin and are those which shall suffer. Recall even Calvin at one point said that there are babies in hell not a span wide. Notice that Job had no such thoughts. 
He argued that had he been stillborn or had he been, in fact, such that he had died in, in, in youth, he said he would at least have been at rest. He entertained no notion, he entertained no thought that a baby could, in fact, suffer eternity in hell. You'll also notice with me beyond verse 13, there's verse number 20. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life unto the bitter in soul? Job knew, you see, that had he died while young in that state without sin, he would not have been in the miserable condition he was now enduring or suffering. Finally, there is verse number 24. For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like waters. It would seem that before each time he at least attempted to eat, there was a great deal of sighing. There was a great deal of discomfort associated with almost any activity, even as simple as that of attempting to eat. Job has, in this chapter, at least set before us the degree of the misery surrounding his physical plight and the mental anguish that accompanied it. It is with that in mind that we might understand. As the bottom of that slide indicates now, the three friends join in as well. And there are what's often called cycles of speeches. I've listed in parentheses the number of chapters that go with each one, and I've tried to do that in order. We've noticed in chapter 3, Job has now spoken and tried to help the friends understand how pitiful his condition was. Now we notice that Eliphaz in, chapter, in the next two chapters speaks as well. He addresses Job and tries to bring Job to a clearer understanding of what the problem is. After Eliphaz, Eliphaz speaks, Job then devotes two chapters, and that records for us his reply to Eliphaz. Following Eliphaz, we notice that Bildad, another of the friends, he takes only one chapter to state his case, somewhat more briefly than Eliphaz did, but you'll notice that Job takes the same number, two chapters, to respond to the claims of, of Bildad. Finally, there's the third friend, Zophar, who also takes but a chapter to state his cause and case. And then you'll notice that Job now takes three chapters. As it has been divided into book, chapter, and verse, it is now three chapters devoted to his reply to Zophar. After that, that takes us through the first 14 chapters of the book, and then the cycle will start over again. We shall notice that the same three friends will speak in the same three in the same order, and Job will reply to each one in turn. But for now, let us look at chapters 4 and 5 and see what Eliphaz claimed. If we might for just a moment put ourselves in the position of Job in the sense that we're in the midst of this anguish and in the midst of this great loss. And here's a friend now coming to hopefully share with us some words of comfort, some words of encouragement. I wonder what Eliphaz says to Job. What things does he bring to mind? What characteristics does he bring to the forefront of Job's mind? As we look at that, let's begin in the following way. I have asked us to notice that these two chapters are those dedicated and devoted to these statements of Eliphaz. As you noticed in your reading of them, you may have appreciated that many of the considerations can be stated in a somewhat summary fashion, and I've attempted to do that as well. We noticed the first thing that Eliphaz did, quite frankly, was to rebuke Job. I would invite you to read with me as the chapter starts and listen to these somewhat harsh words that Eliphaz has for Job. 
Begin reading with me in verse 2. If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Eliphaz was quick to say, Job, throughout the weeks and throughout the months and even years, you have been a source of wisdom for many. You have spoken words which have comforted those that were failing or falling, those that were in the midst of great duress. But now the circumstances have come to you, and quite frankly, Job, you haven't met the challenge. You haven't heard the words you've used on others. You need to hear your own advice and wisdom and counsel that you have shared with others throughout the years, and you need to be assisted and aided by those same concepts. In fact, Eliphaz goes on from there to say things like this. Interestingly, he was quick to assert that the innocent do not suffer. That is to say, Job, we might conclude as follows. We are each in agreement that the innocent do not suffer in the way you're suffering. Those who in fact are of a clean conscience and those who have walked righteously do not endure what you are enduring. And because you are enduring this, that must mean that there is something you're hiding. There is something you've done in life, some sin you've committed, some wickedness you've approached, some ungodliness in which you have involved yourself. And that has directly led to the consequences and the conclusions that you now face. I would ask you to note the particular language that Eliphaz uses. Verse 7, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or were the righteous cut off, even as I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of His nostrils are they consumed. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. Job, who ever perished in a state of innocence? Job, are you and I, all of us, not very well apprised of the fact that the innocent are not in a position to perish as you have and as you are? Thus Eliphaz seemed in wisdom to think that he had the initial diagnosis for Job's problem. Job, I think I know the issue, Eliphaz said. You are a sinner. You have been guilty of great and dire sin. And though you haven't announced it, though you haven't confessed it, though you haven't in fact brought us to the realization of it, rather you're trying to hide it, that's the first thing you need to realize. You'll notice even beyond that, in verses 16 and 18, we notice that Eliphaz makes a brief statement about the character of God. God is mighty, He is pure, He is noble, He is righteous, and He does not bring the kind of suffering that you're suffering onto those that are innocent. I would invite you to notice His wording and His language in verse 16. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. 
It is at that point we might interestingly observe. Eliphaz points out to Job, Now, Job, you need to just confess whatever this is that you've done. You, after all, are not more just than your Maker. You are not more pure, more innocent, more holy than He. You need to just confess whatever it is that you've done so that these terrible things can be taken from you. In verse number 17 and 18, we notice that even the angels are therein mentioned. He char- his angels he charged with folly. We have perhaps the clearest Old Testament statement of a particular rebellion in heaven in which the angels chose to act unwisely, in which they chose to act in rebellious folly toward the God of heaven. It is that very aspect that's mentioned in the book of Jude, it seems, also Second Peter in the New Testament. It did amazing that in 2 Peter 2.4, it still comments for us on that occasion that those angels that sinned were cast down and are held in everlasting chains until that great and noble day of judgment. All of that helps us see that as this opening chapter, this chapter number 4 closes, Eliphaz isn't finished. We're about to notice in chapter 5, he has some additional things to say unto his friend Job. But to bring us to that point, You'll notice he accused Job in the first four verses of chapter 5 of being a man of foolishness and a man of folly. Let's notice his wording and language in those verses. Verses 1 to 4 of Job chapter 5. Call now, if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. At this point, isn't it an amazing conclusion? Here Job was in the midst of such suffering. Not merely his own physical condition, but he has just suffered the loss of his children. These whom he considered no doubt so precious and dear... They've been killed. And in the midst of all of that, Eliphaz now basically says, Job, your foolishness is what killed your children. Your folly is what led to their demise. Your sad and pitiful choices is what led to their resulting calamity. I believe at this point we would quickly say, how much comfort do you suppose Eliphaz was to Job? What kind of words has he shared so far that have been in any sense a lifter of Job's mental constraint, a lifter of the state of despair in which he found himself? I believe we can quickly go on beyond that and notice that in verse 6, Eliphaz even has this to say, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man is born into trouble. Job, there's a reason for why you're suffering the way you are. It didn't just happen of coincidence. And it didn't just happen because of the character of the unfolding of the matters of time. Something has brought this upon you and you just need to come clean. And you need to inform us what this is. And more important than that, confess it to God. And He will in fact make your cause better. Eliphaz's words no doubt have been a stinging consideration to Job to this point. And in fact, in a moment we'll see his reply to Eliphaz and we will appreciate, I think, clearly just how Job felt about the kind of things Eliphaz had said. 
beyond these words so far. In verses 8 and 17, these thoughts were uttered by, in fact, Eliphaz. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause. Eliphaz now very clearly says to Job, Job, if I were you, I would seek unto God and I'd commit my cause to Him. You apparently, Job, are not seeking unto God. You're taking different paths in life. You're seeking different sources of encouragement. You are seeking for the means of life in different ways. If I were you, Job, I would simply petition God. Note verse 17 as well. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. God has, in fact, not only allowed you to suffer these things, He has been the critical one that's brought them upon you. God has, in fact, brought you this suffering because you've done something that's worthy of this chastening. You've acted in some way that is a despiteful, sinful, ungodly, and full of iniquity. If I were you, Job, I would simply come to God, seek His cause, and seek His way. You'll notice beyond that in those verses that close chapter number 5, we find the following conclusion. Verse 27, Lo this, we have searched it, so it is. Hear it and know thou it for thy good. Job, we are your good friends. We have discussed your situation we amongst ourselves clearly understand what's involved. You need to just listen carefully to what we have to say and you need to follow the advice that we're going to give you. Notice that Eliphaz says, we have searched it out and it's good, Job. This is the real thing you need to listen to. One thing we certainly can say is Eliphaz was confident of himself and his friends. He was confident of their diagnosis of Job's problem. He was confident of the advice that he had to give as well. With these words that we have now heard, how did Job react and respond? The next two chapters highlight for us what Job had to say in the face of what Eliphaz had said. Let's now in brevity also note these next two chapters. In chapters 6 and 7, we come to these comments. And might we begin by noting, And Job answered, verse 1 of chapter 6, after listening with patience to what Eliphaz had said for the last two chapters, it is now the case that Job reacts and responds, and he does so in a very pointed, a very direct, and in a very powerful way. He begins by asking Eliphaz to seriously understand the extent of his suffering. Job, in effect, says in verses 2 and 3, "'Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now would it be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. The Hebrew rendition, as it closes, verse number 2 says, My words have been rash. Eliphaz, if you'd like to know the reason for the terseness in my language, for the directness in my speech, it's because of the overwhelming gravity of that which I'm now suffering. In mental state... I have in fact suffered greatly. I've lost my children. My wife hasn't supported me. I've lost my possessions. In terms of reputation, now you come and charge me with evil. You charge me with in fact directly failing to seek unto God. It is now Job 
who asks Eliphaz to give serious thought to what he'd accused Job of. And he does that in some of the following ways of chapter 6. I would invite you to notice with me, interestingly, verse 5. Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass, or loweth the ox over his fodder? Job makes the interesting observation. That cow that is full and satisfied will cause you no problem because it will not moo and it will not make the sounds that it does. But if it's hungry and if it is the one that is lacking in something of which it has need, then you will hear it make noise and you will hear it inform others of its need and requirements. Job says, that's why I spoke first. You came and you sat with me in silence, and though no doubt Job had an appreciation of that. This initial accusation on Eliphaz's part is far short of what it ought to have been. They apparently do not understand the intense character of the kind of person that Job was and that which he was suffering in anguish and in actual establishment. Beyond that, note these things with me. In verse 10, Then should I yet have comfort... Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. In that instance, we see that Job, even himself, commented of the dire state that he was in. And that's why he had stated his wish for death the way that he did. He knew that at least in death he would have peace. And he knew in death he would at least have a degree of comfort because all the sufferings of this physical life would be behind him. He says, that's why I spoke the way that I did. But now as far as your accusations, he now turns the conversation in a different direction. In the latter part of chapter number 6, please note these observations with me. In verse 15, My brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook, And as the stream of brooks they pass away, which are blackish by reason of the ice, and wherein the snow is hid. What time they wax warm, they vanish. When it is hot, they're consumed out of their place. Job, in essence, you'll notice in verse 15, makes reference to his brethren, perhaps those friends. And he says, they've dealt deceitfully. Whereas you intended to be of comfort to me, whereas you intended to lift my spirits, you have dealt deceitfully with me. You, in fact, have spoken that which was deceitful. You have not been apprised of the facts. You have not been apprised of the basic nature of the God whom you're attempting to speak to me about. The latter part of that verse, as the stream of brooks, they pass away. Job obtained very little assistance from the words of Eliphaz, didn't he? He, in fact, stated it in in so many ways. I would invite you to notice furthermore, verse 24. Teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. Job says, you've accused me of sin. You've stated that that is why all these calamities have come upon me. You've asserted that I have been guilty of error. Job says, I am willing to listen. Inform me what is it that I have done. Tell me, what is it that has been the character of what has caused this division, if that's true, between me and my God? I am willing to listen, he said. Job was not a pompous, self-arrogant person. He was willing to listen to the charges of the friends, but he wanted them to be specific. They, in a very general way, have said, Job, you're in a state of despair. You brought it on yourself because of your sin. That's obvious. 
but they had no detail. They offered no specifics. For that reason, he said, cause me to understand wherein I have erred. Beyond that, we notice in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 7, as Job continues his reply to Eliphaz, he says, Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? As a servant earnestly desireth the shadow, and as a hireling looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed to me. Oftentimes we might have wondered, how long did Job suffer? The events of chapter 1 and chapter 2 unfolded so quickly. Remember there was one occasion when one messenger after another came and said, the oxen are taken, the sheep are taken, the camels are taken or destroyed, and your children have died. And maybe we're of a position to think all this happened in a day or two. And it's true, that message came quickly, but Job here at least informs us in verse number 3, that for months he had apparently suffered. As the friends came, as the difficulties surrounding them, now apparently some time has elapsed. And he notices wearisome nights are appointed to me. We can imagine that Job had little difficulty with all the problems surrounding himself. He was able, in fact, not able to sleep very well, if much at all. We notice furthermore in verses 5 and 6, My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. In his present state, Job considered himself almost hopeless. He knew that his physical calamity and condition was not going to get much better unless something dire took a turn for the better. He had again lost the possessions that were his, how were those going to come back? Job, you see, now recognized even his skin had become loathsome. I'm told, at least by reading those who seem to have done more research concerning it, that this kind of physical disease that he had, where these sores openness, often there was a stench surrounding those, that pus and fluid that would be upon you. Perhaps as flies would congregate and be around you, it would be a, a very sickening thing to see. And one would not really want to be too much around one like that because of the possibility of disease and just the smell. That's the kind of state Job found himself in. To have gone from the station he was in as chapter 1 began to this station, look how far he has come. Look what changes have been wrought. No wonder as chapter 7 moves onward, Job now has these things to say. I'd invite you to observe with me verse 16. I loathe it, speaking of his life. I would not live alway. Let me alone, for my days are vanity. He said, I am sick of the state I'm now in. I'm not in this state because I've chosen it. I'm not in this pathetic place now because it's been my choice and volition. I hate it. But I do not know what has brought it about. As he proceeds to discuss, we also note this, verse 20. If I have sinned, what shall I do unto thee? O thou preserver of men, why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. 
Job had an intense interest as he first has clearly stated there and will state several times later. He does have a desire to have a conversation with God. He doesn't understand why his current state has allowed to be the way that it is. He would like to dialogue with God so that he could hear God's explanation and hear God's reasoning concerning that. He simply wants to understand and to know. Might we keep in mind, though, at this point, he hasn't foolishly accused God. He hasn't foolishly cursed God in any way like his wife encouraged him to do. Perhaps in light of the closing of chapter 7, we do come to at least give thought to some very, very brief lessons. Certainly more than four have been found in these chapters, but we shall content ourselves just with quickly noticing these. But what might be some things that can help us as we think about living for the Lord? I would submit that among the things we can find is that here was a just man, Job, who found himself in the midst of great suffering and difficulty. In fact, great pain. In fact, great difficulty perhaps beyond our easy ability to describe it. I simply highlighted that this way to you and to me. There may come bitterness in life, a great element in despair. Things may collapse around you and me in a similar way to the way they did around Job. He lost everything. Could that happen to you and me? Certainly it could. Give some thought to the language that we have found in these particular set of verses. We notice that the difficulties that come from sin and that the things in life, doesn't all this remind us about the scene in the Garden of Eden? Back prior to sin's entrance into the world, Adam and Eve lived in this pristine condition in which they were in fellowship with God and there was no disease upon earth then. There was no calamity, no difficulty. It all came because there was sin. When God put in place those characteristics and man violates and transgresses the law of God, think of the darkness that has come upon the world, the characteristics of difficulty that have entered we notice that that helps us long too, doesn't it, for that grand state in heaven where there shall be none of this calamity. No wonder the writer in Revelation brings us to appreciate the grandeur of what God can provide and does to those that are His faithful. Though our lot here in the physical condition may be unpleasant and it might be uncomfortable at times, may we never forget that at the end of the way, for those that are the faithful... We remember the words of Paul in Romans 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so it is that we at least see through the reality of Job that you and I too have difficult circumstances. There are times that suffering may be keen and there are times that it can be a hard, hard thing. It is in light of all of that. We remember so often the fact that Jesus suffered, did He not? In 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and following, it was He who was nailed to a tree. It was He who in agony, we well remember, refused all the comforts that were offered to Him on the cross. He chose to endure all of it in the reality of the sin that He was paying the price for. Not His own sins, but yours and mine. Jesus knew suffering, didn't He? Scourged and scourged in John 19, verse 1. The awfulness of that Roman beating that He endured, He suffered. Our Lord knew it and He too was innocent. 
Sometimes our difficulties, maybe we can endure them better when we remember Jesus was innocent and He suffered. Job was innocent and He suffered too. Sometimes that suffering can in us mold us to make us a stronger individual as well. Perhaps a second lesson. We do seem to see in the language of Job a reminder of what a great blessing good health is. Of all the things he could have mentioned as he addressed Eliphaz, he seemed to spend more time making note of the anguish of his physical state. Seems to me that helps to teach us again what a great blessing our good health is. If each of us do enjoy good health, oh, how thankful we should be. For that good health is truly a tremendous gift of God. The capability to have a strong mind, to have a reasonably strong body, to enjoy day by day the blessings of what God has placed about us, that is a tremendous gift. Job, you'll notice in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7, it was his health that he lamented having lost. Maybe as you and I give thought to the blessing of our health, isn't it interesting that in, among the things that are those good blessings from God, we can certainly think about the degree of our health. I would ask you to notice interestingly the gratefulness that should be our lot from Ephesians 5 verse 20 all the way to James 1 verse 17, commenting on how blessed we are to enjoy the kind of health that so many of us are privileged to have. Beyond the measure of good health, we do notice that Quite to his commendation, Job was open to instruction. Even though these friends, at least to this point, Eliphaz had not said many comforting things, Job was willing to listen. Sometimes in life we encounter those who are not willing to listen. They think they have all the answers. They think they have all the information they need. And I am not going to listen to you at all for you have nothing you can tell me. It's as if they have an attitude, I'm smarter than you are, I'm more experienced than you do, and I am not interested in hearing what you have to say. Maybe at the work site you've known someone like that. Maybe in other ways in life there are those who at least give that impression. That's a rather sad kind of mentality, isn't it? Much to his credit, Job said, I'm willing to listen. Tell me wherein I have erred. Explain to me wherein I have made the mistakes that need to be corrected. In fairness and in honesty, isn't that a noble characteristic of Job? And wouldn't that be a noble one of us? To ever be open to constructive criticism. I'm willing to change and to listen. Tell me in love and in truth what needs to be changed. No one, I suppose, likes a pompous, arrogant attitude where there's a holier-than-thou mentality. But for a person who in truth and in earnestness and in absolute consideration comes to another and says, Have you thought about this? May I kindly give you some advice? We should be thankful for a friend like that and for a brother or sister in Christ who is of that mentality. I've listed for us in our thinking Romans 6 verse 17 in the New Testament as Paul made note to the Roman brethren. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin... But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. The Romans, thankfully, were open ears to what Paul had preached to them. Paul was thankful they had heard and they had obeyed. 
Today, maybe we could be thankful for that kind spouse or friend or other individual who, by observing of our case and the good knowledge that they have to share, is able to give us information and counsel that can help us on our journey as well. In the fourth place, maybe we can also note this in the language of Job. It's also not too difficult to hear in the words of Job a sense of hopelessness in which at this point, having lost all that he had, including his health, he seemed to be in a dire state. He didn't know what to do. His friends to this point were of little, if any, help. His own wife had been of no help. His children were gone. He was searching for places to find some direction. I might point out that in that we do seem to hear a sad tone of hopelessness. And I would invite us to consider in closing Ephesians 2.12. By far the saddest note of hopelessness of all is the hopelessness of being without Jesus. Paul, as he addressed the Ephesian congregation, it was to them, he said, You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise without God and without hope in this world. You were hopeless, he said. But thanks be unto God, in the next verse he says, But now you are drawn nigh to God. Jesus is now who you've come to know, and through Him you've been reconciled to God and drawn close to the One who is the greatest source of hope of all. It may be tonight there's one or more in this audience who spiritually is in a state of hopelessness. You're in sin, you're apart from God, and in that state you're hopeless. For if the day of judgment were now to come upon you, what hope would you have? We can't hope that God will ignore our sin. We can't hope that He'll just forget it. We can't hope He'll overlook it. The books will be opened, Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. We need to have our name in the Lamb's book of life. And it can only be there if we've had those sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way. But oh, what hope that gives us. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. It's one thing to live in this life and to walk upon the footstool of the Lord and to appreciate all the daily physical blessings, but by far the greatest yet is to know the spiritual blessings available in Ephesians 1, verse 3. All spiritual blessings are in Christ. Are you in Christ tonight? This book of Job has challenged us in these first seven chapters to appreciate physical calamity and loss that can be suffered and endured. And as we go on from here, many other things we shall encounter as the chapters unfold. If I might take a moment to do so, I might ask us as we begin our study in chapter 8 next Sunday evening, we will give thought to the next three chapters. So read on up through chapters 10 or 11 or so, and we will see what next has to be learned as we give thought to these next chapters of the book of Job. For tonight, I've summarized our thoughts this way. Job first made his statement of the grief that he was enduring. Eliphaz answered with little words of comfort. They were basically words of accusation. We now notice that Job finally has replied by again, stating some things that you and I have found intriguing, openly wishing to hear what, what these had to say if it was anything constructive. Tonight, have you heard the constructive words of the Lord? Have you heard the plan of salvation and responded to it in love and in faith? If not, why not tonight? 
Jesus, in fact, requires that you believe Him to be the Son of God, that you repent of your sins, that you confess His sweet name as the Son of God, and that you be baptized. Upon so doing, walk with Him hand in hand through life. You too will have the greatest association of all, if so. If you, though, have begun that walk with Him, but at this point have veered off onto another path, why not come back to the right path? Why not come back to the right way? The New Testament explains that you need to repent of your sins in that state. Recognize, too, that you need to come back to an earlier way, and in that repentance, confess those sins unto God and He will forgive. If we could be of help by way of prayer on your case tonight, we'd be honored to do that. If we could be of help to one or more, why not let that be known if you would, while together we stand and sing the selected hymn.